The second day of my daughter's fifth grade year, her teacher caught up with me on the curb. We need to talk. His eyes fixed me with a penetrating stare. Your daughter is a special kid, a gifted child who should be treasured. Ah, sorry, he didn't say that. He said, she's clueless, she has no idea what's going on in class. This teacher was a hard-ass headed for retirement, known for giving parents unvarnished assessments of their beloved cupcakes. Truth? We'd been getting mixed messages about our daughter's performance for a while. In first grade, she narrowly missed getting reading help because she wasn't, as the specialist put it, the lowest of the low. In third grade, her teacher acknowledged that she hadn't learned her multiplication tables, but not to worry because she was such a good kid. Had I not been working at great schools where every water cooler conversation revolved around alarming educational statistics, I would have dismissed this teacher. What did he know? My daughter was unique. Maybe she wasn't academic. Maybe she was artistic or athletic. That's just who she was. American parenting in the 21st century is famously angst-ridden. In one study of 3,000 parents from across the country, one of the only common experiences was fear for their children's safety in an uncertain world. Sex, drugs, stranger danger. But then there's other research that suggests we're overly optimistic. We're trusting when we should be skeptical. We're complacent when we should be concerned. I'm Carol Lloyd, and this is Like a Sponge, a podcast for parents about the science of learning. And today we're looking at the parent perception gap. It can be boiled down to these findings. Over 90% of parents expect their child to go to college, but only 40% of Americans ever get a two to four year degree. I'd always thought this college expectation gap had everything to do with the high cost of college. But then last year, a survey came out that made me pause. The survey looked at 1,300 parents of kindergarten through eighth graders, and it found nine out of 10 parents think their child is working at grade level. But test scores show that fewer than 40% of students are working at grade level. Again, that leaves about half of all American parents believing something different about their child than the numbers show. The question is, why? I called Bib Hubbard, founder of Learning Heroes, the organization that sponsored this new research. Your recent 2016 report, Hearts and Minds of Parents in an Uncertain World, offered some really interesting and sometimes surprising eye-opening facts around parents. And what did you guys find? There was a lot that we learned, but the big aha for us was that nine in 10 parents, and this is regardless of race, income level, education level, geography, (laughs) believe that their child is at or above grade level in both reading and in math. In fact, you know, based on the NAEP data, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, barely a third, barely 35% of our students are performing at grade level. So So there's this gap between... the 90%, exactly. It isn't until they, you know, they're out of high school that they realize, oh my goodness, I could have done something more. And we've talked to moms, this one mom in particular, she just assumed her child was okay. He was getting C's and low B's, and she thought he was fine. And now he's a junior in high school, and she is realizing that he has a lot of work ahead because he is not where he needs to be academically. And she regrets not getting engaged in a different way. 
It's not that parents don't feel responsible for their child's education. In fact, Hubbard says the data shows the opposite. Parents do feel like they have an important role to play. Only 12% of parents would put, you know, place the teacher as the person most responsible for their child's in-school success. Most parents place themselves as most responsible or their child. Um, and that, that cuts across. But we do see Hispanic and African-American families who uh, hold themselves more responsible than white families. So, if parents feel responsible, they value education highly, and they're involved, then why might there be this disconnect between parents' perception and kids' academic performance? So in 2017, we went back to, to find out why. You know, why do parents have this inflated view of their child's progress? And what we found is that parents are deeply engaged in their children's education across races, income levels. Um, they're talking to their teachers, they're looking at homework. Um, and so we started scratching our heads and started actually looking at the materials that parents are receiving. Like report cards or those results from standardized tests, all the bureaucratic stuff that's supposed to help us understand our child's academic progress. And they found it was... Very confusing and, and the opposite of parent-friendly, in fact. In other words, the perception gap may be the result of an information gap. I ask Bib, who has two teenage sons, whether the results of this study changed her own perception of her kids' schooling. I'm certainly part of the 90% as well. I mean, my second son, when he got to middle school, I got his first interim report card grade, and it was filled with this acronym NHI. And I thought to myself, huh. National Honor Institute, you know, what could this possibly mean? Come to find out, it means not handed in. <laughs> oh, so, my goodness. So you were... I was like, oh. So that is, uh, and, you know, we still work with him on a daily basis to make sure he's putting his name on his papers and getting them handed in. Um, so it was just a good, you know, kind of reminder to me that, you know, this, we're, we're all the 90%. Um, but we need to also acknowledge that they might need some additional support. Of course, as human beings, we're prone to all sorts of biases that prevent us from seeing what's going on around us. There's a bias that makes people overestimate not only their own abilities, but those of the people close to them. It's sometimes called the Lake Wobegon effect, referring to the radio show about that fictional town where all the children are above average. His mother believes he's a child genius. Then there are other biases that may influence how parents perceive their schools. Choice supportive bias is when parents look for evidence suggesting that they made a good choice. It's a great school, isn't it just the, the best? The familiarity principle is that we prefer things we're more familiar with, which maybe explains why in one study, almost 50% of parents give their local schools an A or a B, but only 18% give the nation's schools the same top marks. Taken together, these blind spots also might explain why parents tend not to notice the signs along the way if their child isn't on track academically. Their children are above average at above average schools. What's there to worry about? But for millions of families across the country, this misperception can be dangerous, especially in low-income communities where kids are four times less likely to get a college degree compared to their affluent peers. Leslie Ruiz grew up in Northwest Chicago. 
Her parents are from Puerto Rico, and like 90% of American parents, they expected their daughter to get to college. Um, yeah, they definitely set the pressure. Um, they were like, you're going to go. It's just, it's, you know, for the better. It's for you. And Leslie's parents had gone the extra mile to put their daughter in a rigorous international baccalaureate elementary school, then got her a spot at a highly academic charter high school. But the school was far from their home, and when Leslie's parents' work changed, they could no longer drive her to school every morning. So Leslie switched schools midway through her freshman year to her neighborhood school, Kelvin Park High School. Kelvin Park had a moment in the national spotlight in 1980 when NPR worked with student reporters to cover the school's transition from a majority white middle-class school to a school with a majority of Spanish-speaking immigrants. Tonight, we will report on how desegregation has affected our high school, Kelvin Park, on Chicago's northwest side. Gil Diaz has the details on the scene. By the time Leslie arrived, Kelvin Park had transitioned again, this time from diverse to homogenous, with 90% of the kids Hispanic, 7% Black, 96% low income. In 2013, when Leslie arrived, the school had spent 16 out of the previous 17 years on academic probation. During her freshman and sophomore years, her parents insisted that she get A's and B's. Yeah, definitely add a C, I'd get in trouble. Um, They didn't accept C's. Here and there, I'd bring B's home, and that wouldn't be a problem. But as soon as I brought a C home, then it was like I'd get in trouble. I've never got, like, punished or anything, but they just, like, they told me, like, You know, you need to remember that this is not, you know, it's not acceptable, so you need to try to raise it up. So with her parents behind her and a record of mostly A's and B's, Leslie was confident she was on track for college. But when Darren Tuggle, AP literature teacher at Kelvin Park High School, met Leslie at the beginning of her sophomore year, this was not his impression. Partly it was context. Leslie was goofing off in drama class. This kid, she was nuts. I mean, she was like bounced off the walls crazy. And when she said she wanted to be in this, this, this new class that I was setting up, I was like, oof, man, I don't know if that's a good idea. The extroverted kid was asking about one goal, a program that matches high school students with teachers to mentor them through the college application process and into their first year of college. I went into the auditorium and she was trying on like costumes like at a thousand per minute and running around and laughing and screaming and being really loud. And then she came up and said, hey, what's this one goal thing about? And I thought, oh, my Lord. Um, And I was I was terrified. When Darren Tuggle looked at Leslie's academic record, a solid B average, he knew that though B means above average, it in no way guaranteed that Leslie was college bound. She wasn't, you know, super serious academically, but she was you know, she was a good student, um, but certainly not a great student, not somebody, you know, not somebody who was thinking 24-7 about college and really pushing herself. She was very social. An 18-year veteran at Kelvin Park, Tuggle had watched a generation of kids deal with more than their fair share of brutal reality. Only 4% of the kids met the state's definition of proficiency, and zero exceeded it. Only 5% of the kids who decided to take the ACT college entrance exam were considered college ready. I don't know of any student that I've had um, in my history here that has parents that have attained a four-year degree. There are a few that have um, associate's degrees. But for the most part, colleges, the kids at Kelvin Park that do get to go to college uh, will be first-generation students. And even for the kids who got into college, 
there were still obstacles. A lot of my students have to work, you know, and so they see and their parents even see like um, the immediacy of needing to put food on the table and pay bills, um, you know, becomes sort of the priority, uh, maybe more than the concept of, of a far off college degree. Even if you get a great financial aid package, um, it still may be that all you can afford to do um, is community college. And, and, in, and in fact, if you have to work full time uh, to help your family pay bills, that may not even be a reality. So um, it's, it's tough. After reading the perception gap research, it was interesting to see there was a perception gap between Leslie and her teacher. Leslie's parents were insistent about college. Leslie had brought home A's, B's, and the rare C. But here's the thing. According to Mr. Tuggle, Leslie wasn't assessing her readiness accurately. At a low-performing school with precious few kids headed to college, A's and B's do not necessarily mean college-ready. When students from low-performing schools turn around and take college entrance exams, they often don't score high enough to be eligible for their state college. Recent news suggests that grade inflation in high school may be getting worse. More students are getting A's, which you think would make their parents happy, but here's the catch. The SAT scores are actually not keeping up. Hmm. New research shows that 39% of high school seniors graduated with an A average in 1998. Last year, that number had risen to 47%. In fact, average SAT scores dropped 24 points during the same period. Leslie is the happy exception. She got accepted into the One Goal program, got advice and mentorship from Mr. Tuggle. She signed up for honors classes, got her GPA up to 3.9, took the ACT, took it again, improved her score, applied for colleges, and filled out financial aid forms. Today, she's thriving at Ohio Wesleyan University, a four-year liberal arts college. But it was far from a foregone conclusion. Looking back now, Leslie says she knows her life would have been extremely different had she not gotten into college. Looking back at, at some, you know, friends of mine who, you know, didn't take my path, uh, probably working, you know, a nine to five and McDonald's or, you know, a- any job as of right now. In America, the bridge that carries students from high school to college is riddled with pitfalls, gaps, blind spots. Students drop off all along the way. It starts with high school. 20% don't make it to graduation. Of those recent high school grads, only two in three managed to apply, get accepted, and then enroll in college. Of these new college students, 40% don't test into college-level classes. Instead, they're placed in remedial classes, a demoralizing experience that leads many to drop out. In fact, nearly half of all college students fail to graduate. In a lot of countries, this isn't the norm. Take Germany, where your high school record decides whether you're en route to a free college education or a formal apprenticeship. In America, it's confusing. The gleaming road to college is dotted with billboards advertising colleges for everyone. But high schools don't equip all kids equally, and it's hard to know if your kid is ready to make the leap. Then there's the exorbitant cost and a financial aid system that's so convoluted that ironically some parents pay $200 an hour or more to have someone hold their hand through the process. It's overwhelming, especially for parents who haven't been to college themselves. Going to college and affording college is a really complicated process. It is cumbersome, even for me as a dean, to help students navigate it. 
But the good news is that you don't have to navigate it yourself. You don't That's Amy Lee. She's the Dean of Enrollment at College of Alameda, a community college in Northern California. We caught up with her as she was presenting to a room full of middle school parents about how they can help their kids stay on track for college. Lee's parents were Korean immigrants who owned a dry cleaning business when Lee and her sister were growing up. Neither spoke English, nor had they been to college, and they worked like 70-hour weeks. But her parents took pains to give their daughters access to the kinds of insights that would help them get to college. But one of the things my dad would do is when customers came in, he would ask them, his regular customers, he would ask them, where did you go to college? What do you do? And he would call us over. And I was in like fifth grade, and I just had to listen to this guy talk about what he did. I didn't really understand like what podiatry was or anything like that. And then they'd pick a college, and we had never heard of it because we're Koreans, and we only know about UC Berkeley and Harvard, right? And so then we'd be like, I've never heard of this college. And my dad said, go to the map. So we'd have to, you know, we'd hear what city the college was in, and then we'd have to figure out like where it was on the map to get an idea of what college was. I mean, it's pretty crazy, right? And my dad would also have, my sister's older than me, so she was like writing essays, and my dad would have um, his customers like read her essays, and he'd give them a discount. And so, <laughs> and so this is really though, this is like the way I grew up. On but Sundays, the only day the parents didn't work, they would drive 40 minutes to UC San Diego, then push their daughters out of the car with $10 and instructions to get lunch and visit the library. And my sister and I would walk around UCSD. We just like walk all over the campus. I know that campus at the back of my hand. And we come back and my parents would be sleeping in the car, catching up on their sleep. Her takeaway for the parents in the room, don't sell yourself short. Regardless of your background, your education, or your finances, right, we're all coming from different backgrounds, but everyone here has something monumental to give your children. Thank you so much, and have a great night. Later, I caught up with Lee in her office. I wanted to find out what her story could offer other parents who may have no experience with how the system works. I think a lot of the times for families, there's a feeling of, like, helplessness. Like, what can you do to help your child be successful in something that you've never entered into? Your job isn't to know every single detail. Your job is really to find someone who you feel like is going to guide your child. In other words, asking your child's high school counselor what programs or resources are there that could help your child get to college. Another one is to feel like that you can ask questions to know that there's 10 other parents in the room who had the same question and they're all sighing relief that they didn't have to ask the question, but they got their question answered. You have to demonstrate that in front of your kid too, right? If you ask a question, it actually shows that you're engaged and you're trying to learn. Sounds easy. Ask questions, find mentors. But what does it look like in real life? My name is Anesa Perez and I am an 8th grader at St. Finbar. I plan to be the first to attend college in my family and become a forensic scientist. When Anaisa stands at the podium declaring her commitment to go to college, she's carving a path distinct from her family history. Her mother, Stephanie de la Cruz, beams from the audience. Her leather jacket and Converse sneakers make me mistake her for an older sister. Her daughter's experience couldn't be more different from her own. 
Stephanie's immigrant parents raised four kids in San Francisco. They had to focus on providing food and shelter. Stephanie recalls they were always working, working. You didn't have support after school. You didn't have support before school. There was never enough time um, to pay attention to the academics or to even encourage, hey, did you do this? Eventually, that lack of oversight on Stephanie and her siblings took its toll. Each of them, at some point, dropped out of school to work. In Stephanie's case, it was before high school even started. If you're 14 years old and you don't have people to say, hey, are you going to school today? Or, hey, get up. It wasn't a regular routine for us. Um, At 14, you make your own choices. And my choice was I'd rather sleep in. So in eighth grade, Stephanie got a full-time job at the hardware store where her brother worked, making $5.75 an hour. A few years later, Stephanie gave birth to Anaisa. As she grew up alongside her daughter, she began to see all the doors that were closed to her. I've been so frustrated with myself not being able to, you know, get certain jobs or go down certain career paths because now that I'm older and mature enough to think for myself in the right way, I'm seeing that I wasn't, you know, what I was kind of missing out on. Um, So I was determined to change that for my daughter. I want the sky to be the limit. Unhappy with the public schools in her neighborhood, Stephanie paid tuition to a Catholic school 90 minutes from their home. College was always the goal. But by the time her daughter hit middle school, Stephanie started to glimpse the limitations of even her own fiercely involved parenting. As much as I would love to help, I can't do her eighth grade math. I can't do her eighth grade science. Um, And even coming to sixth and seventh grade is when I noticed she was kind of struggling and I felt bad that I couldn't help. Her daughter brought a note home from the vice principal about a program called Boys Hope, Girls Hope that helps kids starting from seventh grade graduate high school and get to college. They were looking for new applicants. Stephanie balked. I was kind of offended. I said, what, what is this? What does she think we can't do for you? What you know? And then I looked into it and I says, oh my gosh, this is a referral to something amazing. The program requires that kids spend four evenings a week doing their homework with counselors, applying to high schools, and eventually to college for five years. Once Stephanie decided it was a good opportunity, they went into commando mode. For a whole year before we prepped, I was like, you're gonna get into this program. We're gonna prepare for interviews. We're gonna do these essays. We're gonna do everything. It was a talk of subjects over dinners every night for a year, I'm not lying. Their work paid off. Anaisa was invited to join the program. And then Stephanie had another obstacle. If Anaisa continued to live with her 40 miles from San Francisco, the seventh grader school day would go from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. and involve a two and a half hour commute. No time for activities, for friends, for childhood. In the end, it was decided that Anaisa would live with her grandmother. It's a sacrifice, sacrifice. and that's something that I have to live with being that I made these choices as a teenager, not doing high school, not doing college. Congratulations to everyone for being committed to striving towards excellence. Being an involved parent obviously isn't a silver bullet for the breaks and gaps in a system that fails to prepare a majority of kids for college. But Stephanie's story shows that parents are far from powerless, no matter what their own educational background. Realizing you have this power requires a weird thing. Accepting you may not know your child as well as you think you do. Looking back at my own perception gap, 
I was confident that I knew my daughter. I had typecast her so that her academic struggles made sense. Stephanie suffers from no perception problem. She sees the truth. Her daughter's potential is the sky, but she's going to need plenty of help to reach those heights. You've been listening to Like a Sponge, great schools podcast for parents about the science behind educating our kids. Special thanks to Parent University, Boys Hope, Girls Hope, One Goal, and College Advising Corps. Thanks also to Bib Hubbard of Learning Heroes, Claudia Medina, Leslie Ruiz, Darren Tuggle, Amy Lee, and Stephanie De La Cruz. And thanks to you for listening. Please leave us a comment on this episode and others on iTunes or on our website, greatschools.org slash like a sponge. This episode of Like a Sponge was produced by Carol Lloyd and Charity Ferreira of Great Schools, thanks to the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York and our managing editor, Jessica Kelman. Sound editing and design by Christopher Ferreira. To learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge. Don't care what nobody says, she's about that knowledge. About that